This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Robin Davidson, welcome to Better Reading. Lovely to be here. Thank you. I am, I don't know what he say. Is it like a crush or in awe or I'm not quite sure. Uh, you have been in my life for a very long time because mm. when I started in the book trade, I was selling tracks for a very long time. It was there when I kind of got into the book industry mm. and it was there when I left, really. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, I, it's never been out of print, that book, and it amazes me. It seems to jump generations, which mm. is a lovely thing. Mm. It's great that young women read mm. it and get something from it. And are inspired by it. Yeah, because really. um, I feel that, that that's who was reading it, you know, when I was selling it, mm. uh, was young people. Yes. Let me introduce you because uh, there might be some one or two people out there in the world that don't know who you are. <laughs> Robin's first book, Tracks, which we were just talking about, was an account of her 1977 trek from Alice Springs to the Indian Ocean. By her side were her beloved dog, Diggity, and four camels. The book was an international sensation and later made into a film. Now with her memoir, Unfinished Woman, Robin turns at last to explore something she had no interest in, her past. Through this brave and revealing memoir, she delves into her childhood and youth to uncover the forces that set her path and confront the catalyst of her early loss. Do you know, I was at an event last night in Lismore mm. and this lady came up to me and told me she didn't, wouldn't have known that I was speaking with you. Right. And she said, Cheryl, I've just finished Robin's memoir. And she said, I can hardly talk about it. It moved me so much. Goodness. Mm. That well, was just there, random. Gosh. Well, there has been quite powerful feedback on this one mm. so far. Yeah. Mm. Okay, I want to go back to tracks mm. and to the destination and writing. What is it that motivated you? Do you have a memory of what made you start that journey? Uh, yes, many memories. Um but like most memories, it wasn't one final clear decision. It was more mm. cumulative. I knew that I needed to do something that would gather me together as a person, that mm. would force me to become competent, to overcome a, a sort of sense of my own incompetence, perhaps. It's mm. a better way of putting it. Mm. I knew I wanted to be in the desert. I knew I wanted to be alone. So it was the doing of something just for itself. And I had no idea that anyone would be remotely interested in it. Mm. I had no money, you know, it was the 60s, you know, mm. early 70s. So it was also, I suppose, informed by the zeitgeist of that era where young people were 
doing all sorts of extraordinary things and pushing all sorts of boundaries. And I didn't have any money, so I couldn't afford a mm. car or a, you mm. know, a four-wheel drive or anything like that that was way out of the realms of possibility. I remember I arrived in Alice Springs with $6. Mm. But I knew there were wild camels out there. So I thought, well, somehow I will just get myself some and I'll use them for transport. And that, getting that together took two years before I could actually set off. Mm. When did you write the memoir? Did you Were you journaling through your travels? Or no, was, I've never no. kept a diary, I'm afraid. No. Well, very intermittently. Right. Um, <clears throat> often I've relied on letters. I often write long letters yeah. to friends and sometimes keep a copy, so sometimes I refer back to those. But no, it's not been a habit, unfortunately. Um, the memoir... Well, how long's a piece of string? Mm. It's been gathering for, really, for 25 years. Um, Mm. I first started thinking about, not so much about writing a book, but certainly thinking about the past Mm. in my mid-late 40s. Mm. And that was because prior to that, I hadn't, truly hadn't given the past a single thought. Almost pathologically focused towards the future. Do you know I, I uh, you know, I read that and mm. I about you, mm. and I, I thought we're not encouraged to, in a way, are we? I, I think people always like, and I want to mm. talk about mothers, mm. but my mother died a year and a half ago, oh, sorry. and people just, you know, it's about moving on, it's about living in the present, mm. and actually, I say that myself. I say very often it's about living in the present. Mm. But there is something about bringing those memories from your past. And whether you had a happy childhood or not, Mm. I think it's a tough gig. It is a tough gig. Mm. Um, It sort of came upon me. It Mm. wasn't something I wanted to do. I certainly didn't want to write about myself. Mm. From the day she died when I was 11, and my mother was a suicide, Mm. until my mid-40s, I never gave that woman another thought. Mm. Really, it was like she was just obliterated. Mm. Um, and well, I that's knew, easier to live that way. Well, much easier and actually not a bad way to live either mm-hmm. if you have to survive. You know, mm-hmm. you go ahead and do what's mm. necessary to do. And, of course, if you have a childhood with things like that in it, you're going to be a bit rocky, but everyone's a mm. bit rocky. Yeah. But... As I said, when I started approaching the age at which she died, which was mid to late 40s, these memories Mm. of the past, of my childhood, of her, started rising to the surface. And I found that quite strange. Mm. They were keyed very much by music. Mm. Suddenly, out of the blue, I'd remember some phrase of a song from the 50s. And the music acted as a kind of light thrown on the past and I'd see these sort of shreds of things. Prior to that, I would have said I had few memories. Um, of her? Of anything, really, much. Yeah. I just, you know, it didn't interest me. Mm-hmm. But then I realised that, in fact, I had quite a good store. I'd just mm-hmm. never bothered to mm-hmm. call them up. Mm-hmm. So then around that time, for whatever reason... They simply started coming back to me. 
So I began jotting down notes, thinking about it, thinking about her, who she was, who she might have been. And I think I wasn't conscious right at the beginning of writing a book. It was more just kind of writing to try and figure out what was happening. Mm. Then I thought, well, maybe I should write a memoir about her. Um, and I made four billion attempts mm. and every beginning was wrong. It just didn't hit the target at all. Wrong tone, wrong feel, wrong everything. So finally I wrote an essay about why memoir is such a difficult and dodgy form. Mm. I mean, I don't particularly like memoir anyway. Is it because our memory is so unreliable? So unreliable yeah. and, you know, the ego is always trying to win. So to write away from that, to try and keep your own mm. self-interest aside, is uh, it's, um, it's a chore. Mm. And there are moral ambiguities in writing memoir, particularly books that are going to be published because they're powerful mm. and they can drown other people's stories. Recently I, um, I was interviewed by a journalist, Jane Cadso, mm. uh, about the popularity of memoir. Mm. And I like them mm. myself and I read two memoirs when I was nursing my mother in her final week. Yeah. Mm, gosh. And I said in that article, which mm. I didn't remember until I read it, was that Helen Garner, mm. which is what I was reading, and right. Chloe Hooper... Yeah, yeah. ..in years to come, I'll think they were in the room with me. Yeah. Well... You picked two good ones. <laughs> Didn't I? And it was accidental because <laughs> I just yeah. picked them up and let. But yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Mm. It's interesting that the whole genre of memoir now, I, I've got to say I'm a little bit addicted to it. But oh, that's interesting. Mm. It is because, and particularly since my mother died. Mm. I'm interested mm. in other people's stories. I mean, mm. I have been for a long time. Yeah. That's why I have this sure. podcast. But yeah, sure. Mm. I want to talk about mothers a little bit mm. because I feel it would be dishonest for me not to bring this up. Mm. But I had this, you know, I hadn't suffered that much loss in mm. my life, mm. right? And she died at 83, I think. So right. I had her for a very long yes. time. Yes. And she had dementia. And I used to say to people all the time, and I got this through reading and fiction mainly, that the loss of a father is mm. very, very sad, mm. but the loss of the mother, mm. a mother, changes the course of your life. And I used to think that was relevant for people like you, who uh -huh. were 10 when they lost a yeah. mother. Yeah. One of my really close friends lost her mother at 16 to mm. breast cancer. Mm. But at 50-whatever, I can't remember <laughs> how old I was two years ago, mm. I lost my mother and I was... And it's still devastated. I was unanchored. Yeah. I am unanchored, yeah. not was. Mm. It absolutely unanchored my mm. life. So to have that at 10, mm. no wonder you were trying not to think about it. Well, yes. And it wasn't just the death either. I mean, obviously a terrible death. She hanged mm. herself, so quite a violent ending. But I think what happened around the death. So she was never spoken of again. Mm -hmm. Her name wasn't mentioned. Mm -hmm. No one said anything about your mother, inverted commas, nothing. Uh, I didn't go to the funeral. I was immediately sent away to live with an old aunt mm -hmm. who knew nothing about children. After that, I went to boarding school, so I had no... There was nothing. So, in a sense, that moment that she died until I could sort of escape into creating my own life was like a dead period, really. Mm. 
where I simply was, it was as if I were asleep. Mm. And then when I was 17 and I could escape, then I started building a person. Mm. But mm. yes, it's, it is a huge thing. Although even now, even after all the work of remembering and thinking of her, she's still unavailable. She's mm. not there. She'll never be there. Mm. I lost her a long, long time ago. Mm. And you, there's no retrieval possible. Mm. Mm. But I think what I have done in writing about her, at least, is I've given her some sort of voice. That's one thing. So my duty is done. Mm. But also I've realised that we liked and loved each other and she was a good enough mother. Mm. Which mm. is a great thing to know. Mm. I love that. Mm. Good enough, Mother. I love mm. it. Okay. All right. So, how did tracks come about? How did the book come about? Again, no intention of writing about the journey. You know, it was a very personal, private thing. Mm-hmm. I sold out to National Geographic. That's how I saw it then, because I simply didn't have enough cash to buy equip- the equipment I had to have. Mm. And I remember it was $4,000, which in those days seemed well, like a way. fortune. Yeah. And it meant I could buy all the equipment and do the welding and have saddles. and <clears throat> So I did that. But I knew even then that it would change the tone of what I was doing. Um, I knew that there would be a photographer involved But I told myself, well, it won't make any difference. He'll be there at the beginning, he'll be there at the end, and he might come out once during the thing, and I'll just have to put up with it. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it is still mine. Mm. And, of course, what I realise about halfway through is that the point of the journey for me, which was to be the subject of my own life, was revolving into being the object of other people's gaze or other Mm. people's fantasies or other people's stories. Mm. And I think that's something that happens to women sort of generally. Mm. You know, we try so hard to be subjects, but it's almost inevitable that we we become objectified in some Mm. way. So then when the attention happened towards the end of the trip... And the press arrived and I was on the front pages of newspapers around the world. It was so shocking to me and I had some innate understanding that I was going to have to be very, very careful how I managed all of this. If I believed the good stuff or the bad stuff, I'd be lost. Mm. How old were you by then? 27. Okay, yeah. So so I didn't like the limelight. Then I thought, well, I was offered, Jonathan Cape wrote to me, Liz Calder, who was working then for Jonathan Cape, wrote to me and said, would you do a book? And I thought, well, if I make this book, the public can focus on the book and I'll be left alone and I can go back to being Robin Davidson and they can have the book. Mm. And um, a very naive thing, you know, because, well, not actually that naive, but it's just that no one thought that it was going to be a huge bestseller. I mean, Mm. least of all me. Mm. 
I was also in correspondence at that time with Doris Lessing. I'd sent her a fan letter. Wow. Yeah. So you were a big reader. A huge reader, yes. Yeah. Yes. Books yeah, had yeah. been huge. Books may have saved my life, I think. Mm. At the age of 17, I came across my first proper book and yeah, wow. changed my life. Yeah. Do you remember what that book was? Yeah, well, I certainly do. Catch-22. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It just, I couldn't believe that, well, that that book made me understand that there was a world out there somewhere that would welcome someone as odd as me. Mm. So I didn't, I suddenly felt not so lonely, not such a stranger in the world. Mm. Books do that, though. Oh, yeah. Good stories do mm, that. They, they do. become... Yeah, I, I have. I've found so much solace in reading, mm. more so in the last couple of years than I have yes. all my life. Yes. But then, when I think about it, when I have had tragedies, mm. that that's what I remember about the tragedy. Mm. There's always a story that I was reading that is associated with whatever I was mm. going through. Mm. Right. Well, you realise you're part of the great big story, don't you? Of human and other people have love, their grief, suffering, the yeah. whole shebang. Yeah. You're not. I am entirely alone in it, I suppose. I've been very, very angry and upset the last couple of weeks over what's happening in the Middle East. Really upset. Oh, terrible. And my mother's family is from Lebanon and she's got brothers and sisters. I've got cousins. Terrible, terrible. And I'm really feeling like Mm. the anger is just like boiling up. Mm. It's right up there. Mm. And I had to go to Lismore for work. I'm only just back. I just got back a couple of hours ago and I had to go to this event. This is talking about story and connection. Yeah. And um, and I didn't want to go. I felt that it was irrelevant. What mm. was I doing mm. going to Lismore mm. to talk rural ran- romance? Like, That's what I've been thinking during <laughs> this trip for the book. I'm thinking, for God's sake, you know, right? this little mote of dust yeah. in and the universe. Why are I, we bothering? Why am I bothering? Mm. Then I walk in. I'm not in that room a second. And this woman walks up to me mm. and she said, can I hug you? Oh. And I'm like, yes. And she hugs me and she cries. And then I cry because I'm just so emotional anyway yeah. at the moment. And she said, you, belonging to your community has saved me. She said, I was very lonely and isolated during COVID. And I just would join your live chats and hear about books and stories. Yeah. I, it, it just moved me to my core and mm. the whole night was like that. Mm. I had the best night. Mm. And do you know what it was, what you just touched on? Mm. It took me away from myself. Yes, for a bit. into the bigger, that you are just a, a bit of the bigger story. 60 people mm. in a room, yeah. every one of them with yeah. a story. Yeah, exactly. And I thought, Cheryl, you've got to do that more mm. often. Yeah, yeah, really. Remember, mm. yes, the significance and insignificance at the same time somehow. Mm. Mm. And get out of ourselves Mm. and my own way sometimes. Mm. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, you asked me how tracks came about. So mm. I was in this correspondence with Doris. Mm-hmm. Um, Amazing. I know. Amazing. But it, sa- it says a lot about yeah. her, mm. her generosity and mm. nous, mm. that she saw something in my letters. Mm. You know, she sniffed something there. Anyway, I wrote to her in part of this correspondence. I said, um, you know, I've been asked to do a book about this trip and I don't know if I can write, but... What do you think? And she said, if you can write a good letter, you can write a good book. Why don't you come to England to do it? So I said, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. So I did, and um, I wrote tracks in this little horrible flat. And in Doris, London. In London. Yeah. And I Doris, lived there. I worked at Dylan's. Back. Did you? Yeah, I did. Oh, I gosh. Did. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> this little horrible flat, pokey yeah. flat. And Doris visited and she had just <gasps> bought a... I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky, I must say. But she'd just bought a big house in Kilburn. And she said, well, you can't possibly live here anymore. You better move in. So for two or three years, I had the flat at the bottom of her house. Mm-hmm. So and I was how tremendously lovely lucky. Yeah. Mm. Did she help you as in a writing coach? Not does? at all. No, no. No. We didn't talk about we talked about the difficulties of writing. Mm. I remember her coming down one day and she was so sort of angry with herself and upset and saying, Why do some books come easily and mm. others just don't mm. budge and I'm in the middle of this one and it's just oh um, I they thought, never well, come there easy. you go. Yeah, they never come easy. If she can have problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I've interviewed over 500 people now. Gosh. And I don't think anyone, not one person has said to me, not one writer, oh, well, I just sit down and start it writing. It just comes out. No. That doesn't happen. I think it's a shit of a job, actually. (laughs) Do you know, I always say that. I don't write, right? And I always say it must be just really the most unrewarding job. Mm, I mean, I'm very grateful because I'm a reader. I'm very grateful. But you spend all that time, all that angst, Mm. then you've got to find an agent, then you've got to find a publisher, Mm. and then it gets out there in the world and Mm. everyone has an opinion. I know. (laughs) That's and then it, these days, then it usually disappears. You know, mm-hmm. it's on the shelf for five mm-hmm. minutes and then mm-hmm. it's gone because it's there's too hard. much being published. That's right. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard. It's a very hard job. And it, I think if you're not a, if you're not an introvert when you begin, mm-hmm. I think you become one mm-hmm. after a while. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you're in London. You're in so, Doris Lessing's um, Doris house. Doris Lessing's house. Show um, off. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. She was an extraordinary person. And I mean, you have to remember also. Well, you wouldn't quite. You're younger, but for someone of my era, there were very few heroic women in front of us mm. who we could admire and mm. sort of emulate. Mm. Um, and she was one of them. And, mm. you know, people complain about her books lacking style, which is true. She's not a stylist. Mm. But who cares? The courage of what she attempted to do. Mm. Really, there, it was. she was remarkable. And she was a remarkable human being. Mm. So that was the thing. I mean, one could admire her as a writer, but I admired her as a deeply as a, as a person. Yeah. Mm. 
Okay. Mm. So you've written a book, mm-hmm. Tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember giving it to Doris in manuscript and um, absolutely terrified. And she came down the stairs looking rather Cause, severe. Because usually people, <laughs> there are a few more stages before you give it to someone like that. But anyway. Well, I'd sort of, I'd done what, you know, it was the end of the manuscript. It was, right. was the final product. Yeah. Just hadn't been, you know, put into a book form. And she looked very severe when oh. she looked at me. And I just thought, oh, God, I may as well just go and kill myself right yeah. now. And she said, well, Robbie, it seems you've written a classic Wow. Which was just wow, the most, yeah, it, that meant more to me than any review anyone could have written. You're going to make me cry now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I want to touch on some relationships um, and I guess most fa- famously Salman Rushdie. Oh, yeah. I've got a Salman Rushdie story because I worked <laughs> at Dylan's um, oh, and we were doing gosh. bomb checks. Mm. When you were doing bomb checks. Yes, gosh, satanic, satanic verses. Terrible, terrible. Mm. My heart broke for him mm. so much, mm. you know. And I, I didn't meet him, obviously, during mm. that time. Mm. Uh, but I remember going out one night with my then-husband mm. and we went to this restaurant and there he was sitting there eating mm. um, with mm. whoever he was with at mm. the time. I mm. can't remember. Mm. And I thought, how does he do that? Mm. How does he move around the city, you know? Mm. And then, of course, what happened to him recently, heart-wrenching. Mm. But anyway, how did you guys meet? We met through Bruce Chatwin, who was a friend. Oh. Um, <laughs> Bruce was a friend I met quite a few years before. Right. Um, because we were both interested in nomadism. And mm. the first time he, he came to visit me at Doris's and he came for lunch and we didn't stop talking till about six in the evening. Wow. No, he was a very good friend, Bruce. Brew. Anyway, he... After living with Doris, I came back to Australia. It's sort of odd that I hadn't met Salman anyway because we had the same publisher, Mm -hmm. Liz Calder. Um, So we may well have met in London, but it just didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, He came out to the Adelaide... uh, He and Bruce came out to the Adelaide Festival and Bruce took him up to Alice Springs and and he read... um, tracks while he was in Alice Springs and he and Bruce rang me at about midnight. (laughs) Wow. I was living in Sydney and we sort of fell in love over the phone, really. It was kind of obvious right from the beginning. Yeah. It's one of those coup de foudre things and um, then I went to live with him in London what year was that? Oh, How golly, many more I can't years? remember. It oh, was okay. through the it was through the writing of Satanic Verses. Oh, through that time. Yeah, yeah. And then I left. I left him just before, literally just before publication. Right. And did you come back home or stay in London? No, I was sort of travelling. I went to America. Mm-hmm. I think at that time, mm-hmm. it had been quite a. Um, one of those damaging love affairs, mm. very powerful, very mm-hmm. uh, crippling, really. So I was quite restless after that. I lived in New York for, I think, a couple of years, then came back to Australia for a bit. I don't really remember. I was you know, mm. running around. Then I went back to London mm. in the 
when was that, 87, I think, we a group of us bought an old shoe factory in the East End and, oh, wow. and turned it into flats for each, for ourselves. How were you living in terms of, um, you know, getting money at that time? Um, well, Trax was doing well. There were um, filmmakers interested in it. I was writing bits and pieces, you know, mm. bits of... So you were living the artist life eventually. Yes, yes, I was, that, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. 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 Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Okay. Somebody asked me the other day, because I um, was married to a painter, mm-hmm. right, an artist, and mm. he's, you know, still an artist and mm. still successful. And we were together a while, mm. and somebody asked me if I would be where I am now mm. if we were still together. Mm. And I thought about you, actually, <laughs> and thought about the choices that, mm. that people like you and I make. Mm. And I absolutely believe that I wouldn't be where I am now mm. because I think there are those people, you know, um, like Salmon probably, mm. who take up all the air in the room. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I wasn't complaining and mm. I loved mm. it at the time. Mm. You know, I loved mm. the lifestyle mm. at the time. But it, it's so all-consuming. Is there a space for two people to flourish? Um, look, I think you can't generalise about these things. Um, I think I wasn't very good at submitting. Mm. Um, certainly he was much more of a committed writer than me. Mm. I didn't identify as a writer. That wasn't, Mm. I didn't identify as anything in particular. Mm. Mm. But for him, the identity as a writer as a great writer was everything. Mm. Um, and he was more experienced in writing than you by that stage. Yes, yes, yeah. he was, I suppose. Yes, yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you make conscious choices about, you know, um, where you wanted your life to go? Never. Never? No, never. Not mm. for a second. Mm. was always um, fatalistic in that sense, mm. that when things presented themselves, I just leapt in. Mm. And again, that's something to do with not looking back, something to do with having some kind of innate faith in my ability to deal with whatever the world Mm. was presenting to me. Mm. Um, I think it's it's part genetics, part... uh, So much of it is chance, really. Doesn't seem to have a lot to do with my own will, not mm. really. Mm. But you're an adventurer as well, aren't you? In a way, like yes, you are. Well, in that sense, yeah. In that sense, yes, I suppose I am. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I um, I felt really um, <clears throat> bogged down. You know, I had a business, I had a house, I had a huge mortgage. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was good. I could pay the mortgage. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't a problem. But then I decided, do I really want the mortgage? <laughs> and I decided that I wanted to travel more. I'd always mm. loved travelling. So I sold the house. Great. And I bought an apartment. Mm-hmm. So I downsized. Yeah, downsized, yes. Got mortgage free. Yeah, good. Super simple. 300 mm. metres from where my house was, mm. which is where I am now. Mm. And then decided to live. I had been going back and forward to San Francisco. I've got mm-hmm. friends there. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I've got choices now. So mm. I live there now three months of the year. Uh-huh. 
Mm, and right. I travel from, you know, I'll go to Mexico. I'll yeah, lovely. Travel from there. And, mm. and, and I do a trip to Europe. I'm not like you, whether I'm gone for a long time, but I'm gone, I'm not the traveller that will go one night, two nights somewhere. That's mm. just not me. I have to park mm. myself somewhere. Mm. And I often ask myself what the attraction is, right, of being somewhere different. What is the attraction? For me, it's always about the project of becoming. I mean, it sounds a bit pretentious, really, but it really is about making a deeper, becoming more human. Because when you immerse yourself in other places and other cultures and other ways of thinking, everything gets tested. All the biases that you hold, all Mm. the belief systems that you think are just self-evident, but in fact aren't. So it can be quite uncomfortable in that sense, but you're forced to grow and develop and you're forced to make decisions about what you keep, what you throw away, Mm. metaphorically. (laughs) And you understand more about this universe that we're in and that seems to me to be the project. What other project could there possibly be but that Mm. one? Yeah, you're right. Do you know what I find? And I've only just remembered this now. I don't think I've said it before. When I get to a place where I'm going to spend a length of time, and it's mainly San Francisco because I do have friends there, Mm. the first couple of weeks are like, what am I doing? (laughs) Do you do that? Like, it's like I've ripped myself away Mm. from summer to start with because I was going winter. Mm. I've ripped myself away from my apartment. Mm. I've ripped myself Mm. away from my public pool that I use every day. You know, and but I think that... I need the shake-up. You do need the shake-up, don't you? I think so. Well, some people don't. I don't know. But I Mm. feel that I do. Although less so as I get older, maybe. But I I see it rather as if if you're sort of in full immersion, let's say, that your mind changes in relation to that new environment. Yes. So when I'm in India, for example, my Indian self is more Mm. front of stage. Mm. When I'm in Australia, my Australian self is more front of stage and they seem to sort of, you know, move Mm. around like modules. Sometimes they're quite hard to synthesise. I'm not sure if you feel Mm. that. Mm. Um, And indeed the first couple of weeks, you know, when you can sort of feel the old Mm. brain apparatus Mm. clunking into place can be quite uncomfortable, yeah. Mm. I remember my first trip after my mother died. Mm. And after a week, I thought, no, I'm coming home. Mm. I, I can't do this. Can't do it. Yeah. What am I doing? Yeah. I didn't, but that's how I felt. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And also, too, I think as I'm getting older, I want to make myself a bit more uncomfortable. Now, that's interesting. Most people don't. Mm. <laughs> mm. I don't want to be sedentary. Mm. Well, I've been forced to be sedentary in the last 10 years. I've bought a, my first proper house, you know, my first proper house mm. with garden and guest rooms, and which <laughs> requires a huge, huge amount of effort. Oof. And that's where I've been able to pull this book together because prior to that, the book was written in bits and pieces and shreds here and filed all over the world, and some of it was in India and some of it was in London and some of it was somewhere else. So having a kind of sanctuary where I knew I was safe, I knew no one could, you know, take it away, take it away, because mm. I'd lost pretty much everything mm-hmm. prior to that. 
allowed me to just do that final effort of putting the jigsaw together mm. and producing the book. And while I love my house, and I really do, it's a beautiful old thing, mm. I know I could leave it tomorrow and never mm. see it again and I'd be all right. Mm. Mm. Uh, a couple of months ago I got sick, I mean really sick, <laughs> like confronting sick. Oh. I know, terrible, mm. terrible. Anyway, I came out of it. Mm. And I had to go and, you know, go to my GP and do all these follow-up tests and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And she said to me, because I've been going to her for years, okay, all right, well, we just need to get 10 more years of travel for you, don't we? Oh, gosh, what a darling. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. But she was also so perceptive. I didn't mm. talk about that. I was mm. in shock when I went to see her. I'm sure. But I just love that line. Mm. I loved it. Mm. I said, that's what I need. Mm. Yeah. And that gave me a lot of hope. Yeah, yeah, you know. it's a great thing to say. Isn't it? Mm, Isn't really? it? Really. Mm. Anyway, you know, we're out of time. I, I, <laughs> all I can say is uh, read the book. It's called Unfinished Woman. It's a memoir. It's by Robin Davidson. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.